When you find yourself looking for a lawyer to deal with your high-profile civil fraud case, then you need the best. Our next guest, Louise Abbott, a Legal 500 recommended partner at Keystone Law based in London. If you are ready to dive into the deep and occasional murky waters of fraud and the futuristic appeal of crypto, then we'll be right back after the introduction. And welcome. I'm Clayton M. Coke, and I'm also the host for The Cashflow Show, the radio show that's disguised in the shape of a podcast, but with so much more. Every week, we'll be interviewing someone inspiring from the business world and finding out how they started in business, what their trials and tribulations were, and how they intend to grow their business in the future. We will also be finding out about what they do in their spare time, as well as asking them to pick a book, a film, and a favorite single or album, and to share their reasons for doing so. So why not join us at The Cashflow Show? It's not just a radio show, it's a whole new way of doing business. Hello, Louise, and welcome to The Cashflow Show. Thank you for having me. You're most welcome. So I've given The Cashflow crew, our loyal audience, a little taster of who you are. But how would you describe your role at Keystone Law? I'm a litigation partner at Keystone Law, and I specialise in all kinds of business disputes there. And I've uh, been working in that field for almost 20 years doing that. And over the past 10 years, I've had more of a focus on civil fraud. So my practice is uh, largely focused on civil fraud disputes with an element of cryptocurrency frauds, which I'm sure we'll come on to talk about more. Most definitely. I mean, it, it, it does sound exciting. What type of clients are the people that normally pass through your doors or, you know, speak to you on Zoom if we talk about how we do things nowadays? The type of client really ranges. Unfortunately, different people come across legal disputes, so it varies. Predominantly, my clients are businesses, so I will be acting or liaising with directors of businesses or in the case of cryptocurrency, it's sort of in sort of high net worth individuals. You've obviously formulated this career that you've had now for 20 years. When did you decide to become a lawyer? I went off to university and decided to choose law uh, to, to read. And I realised when I was studying law that I had a passion for it and I really enjoyed it and I was good at it. So it was actually really early on, it was, you know, 18, 19, uh, that I decided that I wanted to be a lawyer. I was actually lucky enough that I knew exactly what type of lawyer I wanted to be as well. I was keen uh, and determined to become a litigator. I think predominantly because I like to argue for a living. <laughs> Very interesting. And I'm good at that. <laughs> so obviously you've gone off to university, you've decided to study law you feel that you've got, you know, an aptitude and a strength within that area. Was anyone else in your family a lawyer or within the legal industry? No, nobody else was a lawyer. My father used to be uh, in the Metropolitan Police. Okay, right. So there was uh, an interaction with the, the legal process then to a yeah. certain extent. Oh, that's yeah. very interesting. You've moved further forward and quite a way forward obviously into partner status how has the law changed since you started i mean the law changes all the time you know that's the beauty of it i guess in this jurisdiction you know every time new law is made or, or cases are cases evolve the law the law evolves with the changes of cases so it's been a massive learning curve and it still is so you know you have to part of your job is you've got to keep up to date with the new new law and, and what's happening in in the industry particularly with fraud though 
there's been a massive change. So sort of 15 years ago, the fraud cases that were on my desk were sort of check fraud or property fraud um, or, or sort of bank fraud of some varying description. Whereas now in the world of digital assets and cryptocurrency, fraud has really changed and, and you know, the law has to keep up with the way we live our lives in you know, the modern the modern world. So uh, unfortunately, the law seems to be one step behind, but it's fast change to keep up with what we need. So an example of that could be that with fraud, you used to have to find out who the fraudster was and you'd have to find the individual responsible and then you'd serve them with a writ, as it was called then, and you'd need to know where they lived or what address to serve on. And and that's changed so that now you, you might know there's a fraud, obviously in the context of cryptocurrency, but you might not know who's committed that fraud because it's press of a button. It could be someone or usually is someone the other side of the world. You don't know where they live or who they are. And you are now able to issue proceedings uh, on the basis of that you can now issue proceedings against persons unknown uh, you can serve on whatsapp addresses and, and all kinds of different methods of service so the law's always changing but particularly in fraud the, the scope and the speed or the speed and the development of which fraudsters have moved the law's having to, to adapt to it and it, it you know it's doing a pretty good job we're able to keep up the pace almost when you mention the term of the criminals always seem one step ahead I think the problem is with crime, I suppose, to a certain extent, never having been a criminal, the law really has to play the reactive game mm. in order to stuff that's being done. Because, for example, 20 years ago, not many people had computers or broadband or enough services to be able to be mm. exploited in that way. Whereas now we've got all these phones, we've got watches, which are basically just magnets for criminals. Absolutely. The, the IT stuff, in large part, you know, the, the organised crime or the fraud that I'm seeing, it's by very sophisticated fraudsters. It's not just someone knocking on your door and nicking 50 quid out of your purse or, or whatever it, it used to be. Mm. This is um, much more sophisticated. As problems and the world evolves, the law has to adapt and, and keep up with that. So yeah, you're right. That One of the big things is that you know we're forever changing to try to envisage what's going to happen next, if you like. And that's a good point because what I've noticed is that Obviously, there are different times when people choose to instruct you. Do you ever get the opportunity to have a heads up that something is going to turn into a fraud or is it usually closing the, the stable door after the horse has bolted? It's usually the latter by the time people come to, to me. What I always say, you'll see me saying this out when I'm networking or speaking to people as well as to clients, is that don't wait to speak to a litigator until you need litigation, you know, because by then, like you say, it's um, you're already in the, in, the, in the throes of a dispute or the fraud's already happened. So I don't often get the chance to speak or give advice to someone before an incident has happened. Obviously, if one can take precautions and try to envisage what might go wrong, it's much better to be preventative, obviously, than to have to cure a problem. So yes, there are occasions, I've got a client at the moment who's come to me who suspects that the transaction may or may not be fraudulent. It hasn't actually happened yet. So we're doing some investigation around it, which is great because if our conclusion is it, it looks like it's something that she shouldn't enter into, then, then that's fine and it's been well worth her time and money and effort to take a look at it before it happens but often it doesn't happen that way people don't want to seem as if they are worrying unnecessarily or being overly suspicious but obviously your gut instinct usually tells you when something doesn't feel quite right 
That's right, exactly. And there are things you can do. I mean, obviously, if you're just talking about an individual making an investment or purchasing digital assets, there's probably less things they can do rather than if they're a corporate with what policies and procedures they can have in place. But regardless of whether you're an individual or a business, there are things you can do. Make sure you use a reputable broker. Do your due diligence on whatever product it is you're investing into. Speak to people, take advice around it rather than just you know, going on your gut. Uh, you know, if you can do as much as possible, you know, with employee frauds, for example, you know, lots can be done to to prevent those, you know, make sure your policies and systems and procedures are in place, the paperwork's there. You can you can take lots of steps, whatever fraud you're looking at, to try to prevent it happening from you. A lot of people sometimes don't know where to go. Mm. And I think that's the key thing. They've got this suspicion. They've done something. They think, what well, have I have I done something wrong? Is this a mistake? And the often the problem for a lot of people in, in any walk of life is who do I turn to who is going to give me good quality advice and not think that I am a complete and utter idiot? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's hard. And it's really, you know, if you've got the opportunity to speak to a lawyer and ha- have a chat about something, it's always worth, you know, having that initial chat because, you know, it could save you a whole load of hassle and uh, time and money and effort if, if you just try to get it right at the beginning. Of course, most definitely. So when these cases come about and they sort of come across your desk and the desks of your colleagues, how often do you think that is the chance of recovery of some of these outstanding fraud cases or, or are some cases just a lost cause? Some cases are just a lost cause. We obviously don't run those ones. But the, the most important thing when you are sitting looking at a, a case for a client and you're working out whether or not it's worth them pursuing is, you know, assuming that you've, you've got all the facts and the evidence you need and assuming that there's a legal case uh, to be had, uh, you've always got to look at, is it worth it? What are you actually going to get out of this? Are you going to recover your money? or not. And, and that's the same whether it's a, a dispute with one party owing the other party some money, or whether it's a fraud, you've got to know whether it or not it's worth it. And I'm particularly focused on, on that. There is no point me running a beautifully presented legal case for a client and winning it hands down. And I'm able to present them with, with a lovely judgment saying, you know, it's a great success, you've won, only for that judgment never to be met. It's a pointless exercise. So on the cryptocurrency fraud, which is obviously where, where my practice largely specialises, the very first thing that I will do uh, with a client is we will do an investigation using, a, uh, using specialist investigators and we'll look to see where that money has been moved to um, and which wallet it is now in. And if we can locate that money, you can freeze it Using the court's uh, power, you apply you apply for what's called a freezing injunction. So you freeze that particular wallet or um, you ring fence that money uh, and then you know that there's a pot of money sitting there so that if you then go off to court and you, you go through the process and you win your case and you get that judgment that I just referred to, you know it's going to be met because there is money waiting to be taken. Um, but but sometimes a client will come to me and say, I've, I, I've, I think I've been the victim of a scam, for example. We do some research, uh, a team of investigators I use will look uh, on the blockchain to try and locate where that money has gone. And if it's gone, and if it, we can't find it, uh, very sadly, there's 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 not much point in, in taking on a, a legal case if there's no money to be had at the end of the day. Yes, and it, that makes complete sense. I think a lot of people tend to have this idea of litigating on principle. And I'm sure in my experience, I've had a lot of it. And I'm sure had, you've had a lot of it in your experience where people come to along, along to you and say, it's a matter of principle, but yeah, principle yeah. doesn't get your judgment enforced, does it? 
It doesn't. And clients are obviously, you know, you are entitled to have, have this access to justice and you're entitled to have your your case heard. And if you if you want to proceed on the basis of, of a principle, then then great. It's I think what's important though is just that the, the client or the party about to bring that case understands what the likely outcomes are. And and if they can make an informed decision and say, okay, fine, it's not about recovery of money, it's about principle, then then fine. But obviously my job, I wouldn't be doing my job properly if if uh, if if the client wasn't aware of what possible outcomes uh, and obviously most people are driven by recovering their funds. A lot of people that are going to be listening to this recording and this podcast are going to be people who have SME businesses. I mean, I think it's 99.6% of the businesses in the UK are SME businesses. And so that's basically under 250 people and turnover of up to 50 million. So for those people, how common is business fraud against SMEs? Very common. I, I don't have the stats off the top of my head. And I only deal with fraud. So, you know, my I see fraud all the time. And I have to remind myself that I only see the dark side, don't I? I don't see the great the great business transactions. And there are obviously many, many more positive transactions than there are negative. SMEs are are exposed in, in the same way as other legal entities are. Uh, they are going to be exposed. And, and I think one of the problems for SMEs will be that because especially the smaller ones it's 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 whether or not you've got the right policies and procedures in place whether you can protect yourself as much as possible you you can never say for certain right my, i've got everything down all my documents prepared everything's beautifully prepared i trust all my employees i trust all my contractors you know there'll never be a fraud because you, you can't you can't legislate for that but you can take steps to make sure that your business is as protected as it ever can be smes are a part of that because i've seen and sort of heard of some very interesting cases where even conveyancing tra- transactions have turned into complete nightmares because somebody's handed over the, the conveyancing funds and they've been transferred and ended up somewhere completely different than they should have done. And obviously, mm. so as a consequence of that, that transaction cannot go ahead. And you've got mm. sort of 250, 500, what, 750,000 that's just gone missing mm. because somebody has done something either at the end with the purchaser or, or the seller mm-hmm. that money has just disappeared into thin air so mm-hmm. your point about not being able to legislate you never know where the weakest link is in that chain yeah yeah absolutely and i think with conveyancing in particular it's um it's, it's a heavily targeted sector for fraudsters property transactions carry a, a high risk of being exposed to fraud so it, it doesn't surprise me at all i mean I've, I've heard that and see that happening myself indeed a lot of these frauds now as i said once upon a time somebody trying to sort of defraud you by selling you a, a dodgy item or mm. allowing you to become involved in a transaction where you're unaware of what going on. It seems that technology has increased the level and opportunity for fraud. Is that something that you've witnessed? Yes, definitely. Financial industry is is heavily targeted um, and anything digital is heavily targeted. Uh, cryptocurrency obviously crosses both of those and it's unregulated. So it's very happy hunting ground, I'm afraid, for fraudsters. It's also very easy for fraudsters. You, you know, you can hack into people's computers, phones, online banking through the wonders that are you know, available to those fraudsters. They can do it all from their bedroom sat halfway across the world. So the more focused we are on technology, the more opportunity there will be for fraudsters. 
thank you. I mean, speaking of technology, let, let's talk cryptocurrency now, because that takes up a big part of your world. When did you first become aware of it? Because I know when I first became aware of it. And that was when a friend of mine, Maya and her, her partner, Billy, started talking about this cryptocurrency. This was years ago. Mm -hmm. This must mm -hmm. have been about 10 10, maybe 15 years ago, I'd say about 10 years ago then, say. Yeah. And he yeah. started talking about this cryptocurrency and I thought, okay, this seems a bit interesting. And then obviously finding out how it works roughly and, and the ins and outs of it. And I'm sure he was one of the early, early, early adopters. When did you become aware of cryptocurrency? I was aware of it. I mean, racking your brains, isn't it? Going back years. But, you know, in terms of my legal practice, you know, the odd case was coming through and landing on my desk probably about 10 years ago or so. But it's the, my practice over the last sort of 18 months has just, uh, you know, it's, it's just it's just been so busy. Uh, I mean, I get inquiries about cryptocurrency frauds and scams. I, I get inquiries on almost a daily basis. I mean... There is a certain Wild West element <laughs> to um, yes, a cryptocurrency. It, it, mm. it, it does look like it's, it's like a virtual Dodge City. People are talking about the metaverse and, mm. and mm. Bitcoin and you won't live in the real world. It all seems incredibly exciting. But at the same time, it also seems incredibly scary. It is scary. And there's a lot of money to be made out of investing in cryptocurrency you know there's huge huge vast sums of money to be made and people and businesses are very wealthy as, as a result of it and there's only a smaller percentage which obviously go wrong but it is unregulated but it's, it's complicated so unless you really know what you're doing it's very easy to get caught short i think and you talk about being a bit like the, the wild west you know there are lots of people sort of especially sort of age between sort of 20 and 30 years old a high percentage of people will hold crypto wallet and there is a bit of a sort of get rich quick scheme theory to it so people go and buy buy whatever coin digital coins or tokens they want to people have made a lot of money out of it and so everyone's kind of jumped on that bandwagon it's quite cryptocurrencies quite a sort of a hot subject sort of a sexy subject and and people like the idea of it but obviously because it's so exciting to people you know it's, it's easy to get caught out i was fortunate enough to be at a seminar stroke panel event which you along with your colleagues at keystone law were holding and obviously that was crypto based and that for me was very enlightening as to how far in popularity and how wide the use of cryptocurrency has become. So in my mind, I get what it does, but how would you explain it to a 75-year-old granny? <laughs> cryptocurrency is a form of money. It's digital money, basically. So you can buy and sell coins, which can grow in value or devalue. You're investing in, as it's now recognised in the law, we won't go through that now, uh, it's recognised as a digital asset. So rather than trading, opening your purse and holding £10 with, you know, with a mixture of notes, 50ps, 2ps, £1, and you go into your high street bank, Barclays Bank on the high street, and you see your bank manager and you take out money and put money in, it's, it's essentially the same as that, but just a digital version of it. 
that you, you have something called the blockchain where various different exchanges who are the equivalent of sort of what we would call banks deal with with the digital money and digital money can come in different forms there's, there's tokens and coins and, and different kinds of rights uh, attached to each of those but essentially it is it's just digital money so the thing that i've never been able to work out and you may or may not be able to help me with this how do i turn my digital money into i think what they call a fiat currency which is what we we spend normally yes and that's the bit i i don't get and that's the bit i've never because everybody says get this blockchain and i'm thinking okay so i've got the blockchain now how do i turn it into stuff that i can buy in aldi you've got to withdraw it or take it out so you could have an, an account or wallet as they're called with with an exchange um so let's say binance because that's the one of the more common ones you can see your value going up and down you can move it around you can invest more more coins or tokens into it but in, unless you can actually withdraw it and, and pay it turn it into as you say fiat currency and then put it into and then withdraw the money you, you can't use it so some businesses take payment by crypto. It's a very small minority, but there are people out there that do business trades using cryptocurrency. I know a law firm that takes payments through cryptocurrency, but it's un it's an unregulated industry, and so you have to be. Most people won't accept it. They'll want they'll want your money, if I can put it that way. What do you think of situations where famous people are often used in order to encourage people to deal with Bitcoin? For example, you might see Martin Lewis. And if you're based in the UK, you'll know Martin Lewis as a TV presenter who specialises in consumer and money matters. Mm. And his face is often used in order to promote these things, almost to give the impression fraudulently as good practice. Mm. Mm. Do you ever get involved in those? kind of things where a celebrity may come to you and say excuse me you know hello louise you know this is a big problem for me how do i shut these people down yeah i haven't um unless it's sort of in litigating con context i haven't done that directly but advertisers use famous faces to promote products don't they have all different degrees and and varieties and, and i guess the purpose either it's more memorable like you've now remembered Binance because you've associated it with with someone's face who you, you remember, Ronaldo's face. So, you know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. You know, endorsing products is something that's happened for many, many years and, and will continue to do so. I think with with cryptocurrency, it, it's definitely here to stay and the, the future will be digital. Uh, in my opinion, uh, we're a way off of um, it being completely digital, but it, it will it will certainly be in our lifetime that we are buying and selling things in shops using cryptocurrency. I don't think we we need to shy away from it. There's there's definitely a lot of fraud around it, and we are moving towards trying to become more regulated in in that sector. But on the whole, it's you know it's a positive thing, cryptocurrency. In, in my opinion, having celebrities endorse those sorts of things, you know, you you come to expect it, don't you? I guess. Of course, because the problem is, is that people know that celebrities and or influencers, as, they, as the, YouTube, yeah. <laughs> the YouTube people are called, um, mm. they do carry the sway and they are the people that basically encourage people to invest in Bitcoin and a, a, another digital currency. And I suppose that's what draws people in. So you're, you're absolutely right. That is what you're going to get. And I don't think cryptocurrency is going to go away. I don't. I think people, it will take a long time before people actually get used to it. But I think the younger you are, the more mm. that you've had 
that relationship with cryptocurrency or you will have that relationship with cryptocurrency whereas somebody who's maybe slightly a bit older i'm not putting myself in that bracket but i know i am <laughs> the rea the reality of it is is that you know i've had a five pounds in my wallet for how many weeks now and it hasn't moved but just the card moves in order to to tap in and tap out and yeah do whatever i need to do so it is changing and changing dramatically yeah absolutely and and you know it is the younger the um, population if you like that that are the ones that are generally speaking obviously it's a huge generalization but that own the crypto wallets or the majority uh, do yes it makes sense because that's all you know if i say to my nephews guess what we used to record on to cassette they'll say what's a cassette yeah <laughs> people don't remember what a cassette was like and when the cassette was reeled out and you had to read it back in and you you needed a pencil to do so yeah that's it <laughs> <laughs> yeah and my nephews don't know that they'll just say oh uncle that's just that's nonsense that you know mm -hmm. nobody mm -hmm. uses that this is a download what are you talking yeah. about yeah so yeah it is it is an interesting concept very much so We've had an opportunity to talk about your work at Keystone Law, obviously the background in terms of your career and how you got started. Now we're going to go into a section that, that I describe as what are you like? And I try and say it in my best sort of Cockney, South London type voice, but um, um, it doesn't really work very well. But I I'm working on this. I'm working on this. It's, it's a work in progress. So everybody knows now if you haven't listened to the show before you would have realized that the what are you like section is based on the pre-show questionnaire which every person who comes onto the show gets to read and review and put their answers in so if you don't fill in the questionnaire you're not getting in it's like a nightclub bouncer it's the equivalent <laughs> to that so we've asked louise certain questions and you know one of the first questions that we ask you is what's your favorite book now sometimes our host has to then prompt our guest sometimes they remember sometimes they don't but it's all cool we've got it in hand so <laughs> i noticed that you put down for your favorite books sporting biographies mm. and but you also added a caveat to that mainly boxing ones what is it about boxing biographies that intrigues you then i like all biographies actually i like i like true stories i like inspirational stories and usually someone who gets around to writing a book about themselves or about having a book written about them they've got an inspirational story behind it and i think with sport which is something that interests me generally and i you know, really enjoy boxing, although I'm not very good at it, but I like watching it. <laughs> the stories are great, you know, people building up, you know, they're extreme, ext I say extreme sport, but it's, you know, at the top of your game, how, how do people go from being average Joe to being, you know, at the top of their chosen career and, and obviously sports happens to have, you know, those people, those types of people in it, you know, they, they show their grit, their determination, um, you know, their drive and ambition. And, and I, you know, I, I enjoy reading those stories and seeing where, where people end up. And obviously I like the sports and I like, and I like boxing. I'm going to put you on the spot here. Who would you say is your favourite boxer or the boxer that appeals to you most in terms of their skill and their uh, appearance and just the way that they are in the ring? That's really hard. All boxers are great, aren't they? And uh, there's obviously all the traditional answers. I mean, Mike Tyson probably is the one who's the most electric in the ring, although obviously 
probably not the best person for me to promote, but <laughs> for various legal reasons. <laughs> but, but Mike, Mike has Mike has changed. Mike has learnt the error of his ways and become quite. If you've watched recent interviews with Mike, he's become quite sage-like in his approach. Yeah, and I think a bit more wise old man. Yeah, now. yes, yeah. I think he's he's learned that. I mean, for his time, he was pound for pound the best. And mm. people still talk about him now. We have a world champion now who is named after Mike Tyson. Yeah. So the, 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 influ the influence of, of, of Mike Tyson shouldn't ever really be underestimated. And yes, yeah. I think he found himself quite rudderless, I should say. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's really, he didn't have the focus that somebody like Muhammad Ali had. Yeah. Customato and other coaches who would focus yeah. Ali on, on his game and his approach. And he was a completely different character. Whereas I think Mike was like very much a loose cannon. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if he'd have had more of a support network, really, maybe we would have seen a slightly different situation. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's that's right. I mean, obviously, that's another book that I've read is Mike's story. And uh, yeah, he definitely did not have the right people around him. No, no. Yeah, you tend to find that with these situations. So yeah. we're going to move away from the world of sports and uh, sometime boxing. And then we're going to move on to your favourite business book. And you've put The First 90 Days by Michael Watkins. What would you say is your relationship with this book? So when I was promoted to head of civil fraud and head of litigation at my previous law firm, I took over a large team and somebody recommended it to me. It basically talks about how important the first 90 days of, of your new leadership role is going to be. What should you do in the first 90 days? It's a great read from that perspective. It talks about, you know, making sure you're getting to know people, understanding the people around you who you're leading, understanding the business. Um, and obviously, I had some of that already because I've, I've worked at that firm for many, many years. So uh, I, did, I didn't really need to, to, to pick up on all of those points. But the first 90 days, you know, what can you do and how can you, how can you make an impact as a leader and those first 90 days are crucial to that and it was a, it's a great read and I, I come back to it I don't head a team anymore but it has lots of attributes in that book about being a successful leader in your industry and it's you know transferable whatever you do in life actually it's a, it's a great read. That's interesting because it is down as one of those books that if you are going into the management sphere or the management world that it's something that you need to take notice of because it is something that can really I guess I guess it, it it allows you to focus a lot quickly on achieving tasks and mindset to allow you to lead a team or a group of people mm. yeah yeah it's good now we're going to normally move on to your music tastes, but you've said your 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 music tastes are eclectic. Yes, good word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, I, I'm not going to push you too hard on your uh, on your music tastes because obviously, you know, you like everything, you know, uh, from R and B to pop through to rock. So you're not going to be pinned down by that, which is good. So that's not a problem. But I want to go, move on then to what you've chosen in terms of films and box sets and TV and whatever the case may be. And 
You put down psychological thrillers and crime dramas. Mm. Is that for the legal side of you or is that for the investigative side of you? Both, I guess. It's, um, I just, I, I like, obviously, you know, it's entertaining, but it's also, you know, I like trying to work it out. Um, and I like the surprises that often come at the end of the films or dramas or whatever you are talking about. Yes, because you also put down... Well, I love reading these things because you think you know people, but you don't know anybody at all. I could have known somebody for 20 years. And when I see what they've written, I'm thinking, damn, I didn't know this. But you put down the magic word, Columbo. Now, my dad was Columbo's biggest fan. He loved Columbo. And yeah, Columbo's just brilliant. And the reason why Columbo is brilliant is most murder mysteries or most investigative or uh, crime procedurals are who done it yeah but colombo was a how done it the 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 the, the skill was you already knew who the killer was Mm. and you what you were then sort of aligned with colombo in order to establish whether he could work out who the killer was and the the reason why Peter Falk, who, who was the um, uh, main protagonist in Columbo, was able to carry that series for so many, many years. And it gets repeated now and it still looks... To, it, it's set in the 70s, most of it, and some of it's in the 80s. But it's almost timeless because, because he's got a certain approach to the way that he investigates a crime. He's always seen as a bit of an idiot, Real. Yeah. Meanwhile, he's actually sitting there, basically understanding people's mannerisms, manner, and behaviours, and basically able to focus in on that. And yeah, I, I think that's an excellent choice, and yeah, something that I would definitely approve of. Yeah, yeah. I was very happy when I got the entire box set for Christmas. To Ooh. Some... <laughs> <laughs> super fan, super fan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Now, we're going to move back onto fraud, but we're actually going to concentrate on the psychological thriller and crime drama of real life fraud. And one of the subjects when I asked you to come onto the Cash Flow Show, Louise, was I wanted to talk about romance fraud. Yeah. That's a big topic for me, not because I'm involved in it and not because <laughs> so let's get this out in the open. I don't want any trouble. I don't want any trouble. But I've had some lady friends that have come to me and said, Clayton, this is what's happened. I've been ripped off. Do you ever have cases like that that come across your desk? Yes, sadly, I do. They're usually in the form of a crypto fraud. Um, but they all, but they are romance frauds. So probably about, probably about 40, 45% of my fraud cases have stemmed from a, a romance fraud or a romance scam, um, yeah. which is really, really sad because it's, you know, it leaves people, not only are they out of pocket, but they're, they're vulnerable and feel, feel personally hurt and, and embarrassed. And so it takes, takes quite a lot, I think, to, um, to realise what's happened and then to try to recover your funds if, if you can. But yes, in particular, dating apps facilitate this. So you'll, you'll meet someone online that you've never met before. You are matched with someone you like the look of uh, and then you start having discussions with them either by WhatsApp or email or text or, or even on the phone, having phone calls with them. Essentially, the fraudster is 
shock horror, not the person in the picture that you think you are. Spoiler alert, to. really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but they are essentially coerced into making payments and there are different reasons why um sometimes they get talked into the fact that it's a great idea for a for a business um you know why don't we go into business together uh, or uh, can i can you lend me some money or i, I want to fly over and see you but i can't afford it can you do this this and this and i'll pay you back there's all different kinds of reasons why people part with their money but they do it on the back of whatever very short relationship has formed but without having met these people mm. Uh, and it's really, it's really sad. And, you know, the Tindler Swindler on Netflix, I don't know if you saw it, that, <laughs> I mean, that highlights the problem. That it's, it's, it's most definitely not just women that fall victim to this. And, and in fact, the stats uh, say the opposite, that, that um, m- the majority of victims from a romance fraud are men. So it's often the women who are... Um, who are the fraudsters, if you like. Well, yeah, of course. So it's, it's, it's definitely both. But yeah, I mean, it's it's really sad. You know, and I think to answer the question that you raised about why won't people tell, I think, I think for whatever reason, you, you're coerced into making an initial payment. And you might think to yourself, I don't know, but you, you might have a feeling like you shouldn't really be doing this but actually you know you you've you've built up this trust and you you think that they're going to pay you back and it will all be okay I, i don't know what justification they have for making that first payment but once you're onto the second payment then you're probably too embarrassed because then how do you then explain that you've made payments before so i I don't think people do talk about it you know to their their mates down the pub or on the phone or whatever I, i don't think people do um you know i mean one of the one of the clients that I've helped um, thought it was a, an investment into a company that that um, was being set up and they didn't talk about it to anyone um, and they kept making more payments and at some point realised that they were now in so deep uh, and not seeing anything coming back and obviously that's when, when I was instructed but yeah I, I can't obviously I can't explain why these payments are made i don't know if if the person who makes the payments can ever explain it and and to some extent they don't have to it's not um it's no criticism on the victim Mm. Uh, you know we've all we've all done silly things and uh or made mistakes and you know it's these people especially the the fraudsters i mean some of these tinder scams they are large scale organized crime Mm. so in my mind you're talking about like the equivalent of a call centre somewhere yeah. in the world with hundreds of people going through messaging all these different people, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people. And there are millions and millions and millions of pounds stolen all the time yeah. passing through these crypto wallets. I mean, it's, it's, it's on a scale which is really quite mind-blowing when you, when you look at it. And you, you can't – it's a numbers game, literally. But yeah. you know, if, you, if, you, if you message 100 people, two of them might make a payment. Um, so if you message 200, you're going to get four payments. And, and obviously you do that on a, on a scale where you're messaging thousands of people a day. Um, you're going to get some people falling foul. From a legal perspective, it's so clear uh, factually once we've done the investigation that the fraud has happened that you, you don't actually need to look behind well, why did that victim make a payment because they're not doing anything wrong. They're trusting another human being and obviously they've made a, a bad error in judgment, but some of them are really sophisticated. Obviously the romance frauds are less sophisticated, I guess, because 
you are ultimately making a payment to someone you've never met before. So my advice is always going to be, you know, if people say, how do you avoid a romance scam? Romance should have nothing to do with making payments. If you're meeting someone or you're speaking to someone and and you've never met them and they're asking you for money, that should be an automatic, you know, alarm bell. Thankfully, the courts don't look at the behaviour of the victim. It's it's irrelevant as to whether or not a fraud has happened. And Mm. if we can prove that the fraud has happened, the blame lies solely with the fraudster. It's not to necessarily blame the victim, it's to find out what triggered the victim to want to participate in the scam in the first place. As I said, with men, because traditionally, and it may sound, I don't want to say crude, but it may sound a bit plain speaking, men have to pay to play. So the men then expect to hand over money. And if a woman says, oh, I I need money for hair and nails to meet you, they're going to go, okay. (laughs) So... That's how men can get drawn into that situation. And that's why you you were quite right in saying that, you know, men end up massively um, to be involved in romance scams. And they're probably less likely to tell anybody. Yeah. More than women. I I think you could, you know, because people just say, well, you know, you know, this is what happens or whatever the case may be. But as you said, it's embarrassing for people, not not just the romance scams, all all scams, you know. You're, you're embarrassed, aren't you? Because you, you, it's hindsight. You, know, you look back and you think, God, why did I do that? And um, romance is particularly personal, isn't it? Correct. It's not, it's not, it's not like you've bought double glazing and been <laughs> defrauded because you trusted the guy on your doorstep. This is a bit more than that. It's really personal about your feelings. And so I think it's more embarrassing for victims. Yeah. I think it's about normalising the idea of when you see somebody and they approach you, stop for a second and think, is there any truth to this story or just go onto the internet and start typing in a few things? Because even with the pictures, if there's, there's a a facility called, have you ever seen catfish? Yes. Now? Yeah. Yeah, I've seen a few. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah, I'm hooked on those. Um, uh, (laughs) (laughs) Because it's often somebody who they actually know. Which is yes, quite it's awful, isn't it? And really awful. And that is scary. Somebody mm. that you know is basically... Because th- these people mm. then seem to bond with these people very quickly. But I must say that knowing somebody for three or four years and saying that they are my partner, but having never met them, even with the hopes of consummating the relationship of some sort, I do find that very strange. Yeah, yeah, it is very strange, isn't it? But... Um, I know different strokes for different folks, so you know. Um, yeah, it's it, it's it's it, you can't get your head around it, can you? Because you, you you can't ever see or understand why or how that's come about, really. But it plays on people's emotions, doesn't it? And and what drives it, you know, what drives a person? It's very deep and personal. Of course. Oh yes, yeah, and you're absolutely right, and that's the whole point. You you never know when these and people, and especially if somebody knows you and they're talking from behind the screen, they can they know which buttons to press. Mm. So yes. yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Indeed. So moving on from romance fraud, let's just say, and this is a few quickfire questions as we're coming towards the end of our time here on the Cash Flow Show. If one of your cases gets turned into a movie, who would you choose to play you? Oh God, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> um, somebody who is hugely popular <laughs> to try and boost the uh, the show rating. I don't know. I have no idea. Do you know um, something? With your current look, I reckon Lady Gaga with her blonde with her blonde hair thing could do it. 
She's very good, actually. I'd be quite happy with that. Yeah, it's yeah, good yeah. Voice. yeah. Thank good you, voice. just as well. I think that kind of got, got <laughs> I'll me. I'll approve the... that. <laughs> yeah, because I, I saw her in the Gucci um, film. Oh, House of Gucci. Yeah. yeah, I've not seen it. Oh, she's really good. It's a really good film. I was surprised at how good it was. Very impressed with that. Yeah. So I, I'm going to put um, Lady Gaga. My people will talk to her people and we're going to make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, uh, so good. another question. Will lawyers be replaced by technology? I hope not. I hope not. I think, you know, the legal system is undoubtedly going to change and has already changed considerably with AI and technology. Um, you know, our court system's already changed quite a lot with uh, with AI and technology. And overall, I think the idea is that the more AI, the more technology we have, the more likely we are able to um, give individuals access to justice. And the courts are incredibly slow uh, and they're incredibly busy. So um, you, you have... It, with some courts, you're waiting months and months and months for, for a one-hour hearing slot. And, you know, if, if, if more can be done using more technology, even at its very basic level, which we know about today, you know, just Zoom hearings, you can get through more court hearings by having them remotely than, than, than in person because there's no wasted time, straight, you know, between each one. Yeah. I think, we'll, uh, I think more will be done to be automated. We already know if you, if you go... I mean, go on to Google and want to draft your own will, there's a questionnaire. So, you know, there's already systems out there that you can do it all online. You can answer no tick box questions and the system will produce a will for you. Whether that will happen with complicated high court legal actions, I don't know. I'm not very IT savvy, but clearly, you know, it makes business sense to have more technology and to have more work automated. But I don't think it will ever take away from, from you know, our brains but then um, you're, you know you're asking someone who doesn't really know much about technology i don't think i think you know i've been to lectures with who um, about ai and you know it's amazing what can be done and what is predicted to be done i mean just think just 20 years ago we, we weren't thought, thought we weren't we weren't getting emails yeah so quite where we're going to be in 20 years I don't know. And I think from a client, from, from a user's perspective, a user of the legal system, you know, businesses and clients want a lower cost legal option that's convenient, accessible and digital. And I think we are moving, we are going to be moving towards that over the next, you know, decades. Excellent. Hopefully I'll be retired and don't need to worry about it by then. <laughs> good move, good move. Well, <laughs> with that in mind, we're coming to the end, obviously, of our show here. How can people contact Louise Abbott if have a civil fraud case or a cryptocurrency situation? How can they get in touch with you? You can call me anytime. I'm always happy to have a chat with, with people, run through any questions they've got. You know, we have a very bad reputation, lawyers, for everything we do. We're, we're billing for it. As soon as you speak to me, you're on the clock. But at 100% you are not. I'm very happy to have a chat with somebody to talk through what their legal options might be, whether it's something I can even help with. So I think my overarching point is... If you are worried about any of the issues we've discussed today, please call me. What I will do is that we have the show notes here and in the show notes will be all your contact details and a brief overview of what we discussed today.
Excellent. But yeah, call me, email me. Very happy to have initial chats with people. Louise Abbott, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking to you and obviously learning so much more about you and your role at Keystone Law. Thank you. I'd like to thank everybody for listening from the Cashflow crew and all our new listeners. And I hope you've enjoyed today. We've come to the end of the Cashflow show for today, but I would like to say thank you to our guests for taking the time to share their knowledge, wisdom, and insight. If you loved what you've heard on this week's episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts and leave a five-star review and feedback as it really does help. Whilst you're there, listen to some of our other episodes, which you are bound to enjoy. We want to make this the go-to podcast for entrepreneurs wherever they are in the world and spreading the word really is the best way to grow our show and our community to achieve greater things. Be sure to join us next time for real people, real business, real talk.